0: To Joe, a podcast where we discuss John and Jane Joe cases from around the world. I'm Allie. And I'm Kat. And, and it's been a long time since we recorded. Yeah, it's been like a couple months,
1: I think. Right yeah, now? I think so. And the main reason for our absence, other than pandemic stress at the very beginning, <laughs> Um, is we really just wanted to focus all of our attention on Black Lives Matter protests around the world, which obviously we are still focusing on. If you follow our Twitter at all, you will see.
0: Yeah, so uh, basically we just want to make the statement, uh, Black Lives Matter, defund the police and abolish prisons. Uh, And if you're curious about any of those statements, you can do some reading to better understand what they mean. That's what I've certainly been doing Mm -hmm. recently uh so we recommend the book policing black lives by robin maynard especially if you're living in canada because a lot of the stuff we did not learn in school and it's really important there's so so much we
1: didn't learn in school
0: yeah so we're gonna link to an interview robin did in toronto life uh in the show notes because i think that's a good spot if you're if you want to start there um and we believe that doe cases can be solved without a policing body steeped in systemic racism
1: In fact, they would get solved faster and more efficiently without the systemic racism, since a lot of does, especially in Canada, are women of color. And there's tons of other great resources
0: online. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the main reason why I've called this session of Doe Podcast uh, is because Rosie has been identified. So excited. Yes. So my sources for this update are an article in the Orange County Register by Keith Sharon and an article in a video clip from CBS Los Angeles uh, KCAL 9 station. Uh, And specifically, the Orange County article is amazing and really detailed. So we should all go read it. because It's really good. So Rosie, who we covered in episode 11, has been identified as Anita Louise Piteau, who was 26 when she was killed. A quick overview of the case, Rosie was found in Huntington Beach in 1968 in a farmer's field. She had been sexually assaulted and the cause of death was her throat being slashed. She was found with a purse with photos in it, but no ID, some 1960s clothing that was very much of the era, and a pair of size 7 loafers made by a company in upstate New York. The story of how she was identified involves Amy Spanfelner, who originally thought that Anita may have been a relative of her own, and it turned out that Rosie wasn't, but she continued helping with the case and prodded the police to collect more DNA because they couldn't actually get enough DNA from Anita's body. But because the police had preserved Anita's clothing in 1968, they were able to lift the DNA from it.
1: That's amazing, especially since clothing, as we've seen in all these cases, Tend to just get disposed of or just stored improperly so they aren't of any use later on.
0: Or like sent to a psychic in Florida.
1: sent to a psychic in Florida.
0: Yeah. So from the DNA left on the clothing, they were able to identify both Anita and the person suspected to have murdered her, a man by the name of Johnny Crisco. So, Colleen Fitzpatrick from Identifiers International and the DNA Doe Project was brought in and began the genealogical work of building family trees with Anita's cousins. From there, Fitzpatrick found a cousin by the name of Steve Sabo, who found the obituary of one of his cousins named Constance Saucier, who mentioned a sister of Constance's who'd been missing since 1970. The date was off, but another relative, Jean Pichette, said that they had heard a story of Anita leaving her family in Maine. So I guess at this point, they put the dots together and confirmed that Rosie was actually Anita. And it sounds like she left Maine to go to Hollywood to make it big as an actress. No. And this information was according to Earl Robitaille, talking to the Orange County Register. Earl was the Huntington Beach Detective Bureau commander in 1968. And from getting all this information, it took Colleen one week to crack the case. Which is a
1: crazy short amount of time.
0: Yay, Colleen. We're obviously ants. So in addition to pointing the investigation toward Anita's identity, it also pointed the investigation toward her suspected killer's identity as well. Johnny Crisco's DNA was on Anita's clothing, and he had been booked in Orange County in 1971, so they had a photo of him, but I don't know what that mugshot or booking photo was for. He was in the army, I think, at the time. It didn't really specify, but he had been in the army, and apparently he was a doppelganger for Rodney Alcala, who I what? think is the dating that's the dating game killer, that's right? That's the dating game killer with the. Well, he had pretty fantastic hair, I will say. So basically, think of Rodney Alcala. So Crisco died in 2015, and in the Register article, Robitaille said, "Quote." He died of throat cancer. That's very that's a fairly good punishment. Unquote. And if you remember, Anita's throat was slit. So that's kind of poetic justice that he got throat cancer.
1: That is.
0: It's really like. So if you're if you believe in karma. Yeah, that seems like a little bit of karma to me. Mm-hmm. So apparently, Anita had written her family letters every day from California. And when those letters stopped, the family hired a P.I., but the investigator came up with no leads on Anita's whereabouts. So between the daily letters and the photos she kept in her purse, it's obvious that Anita really loved her family. Yeah. Yeah. It's just heartbreaking. Um, And a burial service for Anita happened in mid-July in Maine. She was buried in Waterville next to her sister Constance. Our hearts go out to her family, and we hope that they can find a sense of closure. Steve Sabo told the Orange County Register, quote, there was no justice, but it was closure. Now the family had an answer to why she disappeared, unquote. Oh,
1: I'm, real, I'm always so happy she's been
0: identified, but so sad. Yeah, this was a case that stuck with me. Yeah. To be honest, because there's just every doe case is open ended. But I feel like because they, she had all of those photos of her family. Yeah. It was just, yeah. So I hope that her family got those photos back. I, I'm sure they did. I'm sure if they did. If they kept her yeah. clothing
1: safe, then I think they kept everything else probably safe. Yeah, I hope so. So yeah.
0: yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah, you go first. Yeah, it's me again. So you guys get to hear yeah. me talk more. You hear a lot of Allie today. Yeah, this is like my episode. Uh, okay, so we are gonna go to my unidentified case. This is a DNA Doe Project case. Uh, about a Jane Doe that has been named Charlene. I have not heard this one. So my sources are NamUs, The Doe Network, Unidentified Wiki, a Daily Journal article from 2011 by Kristen Zambo-Zamco, an article published on August 11th, 1988, in the Chicago Tribune by John O'Brien. So this is the story of a doe found on August 5th 1988 in morocco which is a town in beaver township newton county indiana which is about an hour and 45 minutes south of chicago her burned partial skeletal remains were found in the willow slough estate fish and wildlife area on beaver creek and they were first spotted by a fisherman fishing in the creek and i just want to note uh i don't know if it's willow slough or slough we have tried looking it up I'm just going to say slew, and if it's wrong, tweet us, I guess. Charlene was a black female, approximately 18 to 45 years old. Her height was approximately 5 foot 6 inches. She had black hair. She had an unknown eye color, and her weight was unknown as well. The postmortem interval is estimated to be about one month because it's thought that she died around the 4th of July. She was shot and then set on fire under a pile of tires with another person, who has actually been identified, and they were Selassie, nicknamed Tony, Sherrod Jr., uh, and he was a 30-year-old Black man from St. Anne, Kenackie County, Illinois. It's believed that Charlene could be from Kenackie County as well. Um, On July 4th, 1988, Tony left a 4th of July party, and that sounds like it was the last time anyone saw him alive. It uh, does not sound like Charlene was at the same party, though, or else perhaps there would have been more leads on who she was. Mm. Tony's Chevy Astro was found later, also burned up in another part of Indiana. And also a note, they found one of the bodies the day the fishermen spotted the remains and only realized there was a second body a day later when they could see the site in daylight. Oh, okay. And if you will see on our Google document, cat. Yes. Uh, I've put this little a satellite map from Google uh, because NamUs actually has the coordinates of where she was found and the location is very close to a rural road named South 600 West Mm -hmm. there is no street view of this area but there is a satellite view and you can see I don't know if this is what it looked like in 1988 but it's kind of a loop so I saw that and thought hmm that seems like a place every murderer would peg as a dumping spot and perfect body to
1: position site like that's ideal
0: there's no backing up or anything if that loop was there because you just like go in a circle yeah it's like a I hate to be like like I feel like this is morbid but it's like a drive-through yeah well, no that's what they're usually looking
1: for like especially if one of the things we're supposed to look for is like accessibility and also if there's a hill that's always a plus because they can just throw the body out and it will roll. roll down the hill But in this case, obviously, they got out and actually made an effort.
0: Yes, uh, because there was like the tires and the fire. Um, So I thought that it seemed like a place every murderer would pick as a dumping spot. And then I read in the Chicago Tribune article from 1988 that the Newton County Sheriff at the time, Charles T. Mulligan Jr., said that it was, quote, an ideal dumping spot. Oh. A quote for body since it is quote sparsely populated, has lots of vegetation, and is just outside a major metropolitan area. Well there we go. Yep. And that he thought that Charlene and Tony had been killed in another location and then brought to the location in Willow Slow. I also want to point out that Willow Slow is right on the line of Indiana and Illinois. So that would also make it a spot where Illinois criminals might want to capitalize on nobody in law enforcement districts barely talking to each other. Yeah. Uh, We've seen in a bunch of other cases, like Drew Greer, it's just, it gets a little trickier because the law departments don't really, sometimes the communication is not too great. They don't talk to each other. Yeah. So, I mean, it's right on the border. So that's where my mind goes. So Charlene was wearing Jordache jeans, very 1980s. Um, no jewelry was found, but a safety pin with a 450, like a 450 stamp was founded. Yeah. Uh, and this could possibly be from a Morocco swimming pool. And my note here is, do swimming pools have specialized safety pins? Yeah, I have no idea what that could be. Yeah, so fingerprints are obviously not available, but mitochondrial DNA and nuclear DNA are available. So here's the dental info directly from the Doe Network. Quote, very good dental hygiene. Tooth number one is present and erupted. Tooth number three has MO alloy with mesial buccal fracture. Tooth 15 is missing and bone is healed. Tooth number 16 has a ceramic crown, probably a C-E-R-E-C. I'm going to say CEREC crown, which was very expensive in 1988. Tooth number 17 is missing and tooth number 32 is missing. And that's all from the dough Network. So, Newton County Coroner Scott McCord said that investigators in nineteen eighty eight said that they thought that she was, quote, just a prostitute." unquote.
1: Well, they we can go to hell is what I can say to those investigators. Yeah,
0: there's so many things wrong with that. Like sex workers deserve justice too. They're humans, yeah, like, so yeah, they thought that the crown was too expensive for a sex worker. So yes, I have said that A, dismissing a doe because she was a sex worker is wrong. Her life had worth regardless of her occupation. And B, even if that was true, who is to say that a sex worker couldn't have an expensive thing? You don't know their life. Exactly. So there was a push to identify Charlene in 2011. A forensic sketch by Betsy Cooper was released. So this is from the Daily Journal journal article by Kristen Zambo Zambo. Quote, painstakingly gluing the woman's skull back together, McCord said he had asked his own dentist for help, unquote. So his dentist pointed out the crown and knew what machine made it and also that it was very expensive. And also McCord is the one who named Charlene Charlene. Um, According to a comment by Yaya underscore 521 on WebSleuth, her remains were in a bag labeled C. So that's why he just chose a name that started with C. And in the Chicago Tribune article by John O'Brien published six days after the killing was revealed that two summers earlier in 1986, two mob dudes, Anthony and Michael Spilotro were beaten and buried one on top of the other in a grave in Willow Slough, but they were found on the north side and Charlene and Tony were found on the south side. And it was like a different MO, like they weren't beaten or maybe they were, but um, anyways, they they were burned, not buried. So I don't think the murders have anything to do with each other. It's just more evidence that this area was known as a dumping ground. Yeah. Um, the county sheriff in the article also said that he thought that Charlene and Tony's deaths were perhaps related to drug trafficking, but nothing to do with the mafia. Hmm. Okay. So I'm not sure what until he had on that why he thought it was drug trafficking. There has been no. There was no there were no drugs found. There was nothing. It
1: might just be circumstance like he's looking at okay, here's the area. We get a lot of deaths related to this like
0: I am not an investigator in Indiana in the 1980s. There's yeah. things that I don't know. Um so it doesn't sound like there's any indication that anyone knows how Charlene and Tony even knew each other or how they knew their killer. Mm. Um so I don't know what investigation happened at the time in terms of tracking down the crown or interviewing Tony's friends and family. Uh, the 1988 article mentions that they were looking through missing persons reports in the area but we know that often doe cases are instances where no missing person's report has been filed. yeah. So I don't know that probably came up with nothing. And also from the Daily journal article by Kristen Zambo Zambo. Quote, I just want to find out who this girl is and get her home, Newton County Coroner Scott McCord said. Somebody has to recognize her. Unquote. It sounds like McCord had his own theories about what happened to Charlene, but he's keeping them to himself. He was recently re-sworn in as Newton's County Coroner after a period of not being the coroner. Uh, and the DNA Duo Project has taken on Charlene's case, so I think there is hope that her case will be identified because it's, like, the kind of the county coroner, it seems like, one of his pet cases. Yeah, it does. And also, DNA Duo Project, as we know, amazing work.
1: Yep, super amazing.
0: Yes, so I think that Charlene will get her actual name sometime soon.
1: Hopefully, yes.
0: So that's, that's my case.
1: Yeah, I've never heard of that one before. I mean, there's so many doe cases, it's impossible to hear about them all.
0: Yeah, there really is. And as we were saying, I think like the Indiana, Illinois area, there's so many cases in that area that I just haven't heard of because there were so many cases. Yeah. Hey, true crime fanatics. I'm Hallie. And I'm Brittany. And if you're looking for a new true crime podcast to feed your cravings, check out The Abyss Pod. We scour the web to find the most intriguing cases to share with you every other Monday. You can listen on Spotify, Stitcher, Google and Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and any other streaming app. Follow us at The Abyss Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or check out our website at theabysspod.com. Dive into the true crime abyss with us.
1: So I guess go on to my case?
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: It's actually a pretty short one, but it's kind of an unusual one. So there isn't a lot of information on this case, which has been nicknamed Bus Stop Man. Um, My sources for this are only NamUs and um, the Doe Network. On May 12th, 1984, a deceased Black man was discovered on a sidewalk near the bus stop at 7020 Rainier Avenue South in Seattle, King County, Washington. A 22 caliber revolver was found near the man, and investigators believed he had died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Although, of course, there's always the possibility that his death was made to look like a suicide, but they haven't found any evidence of homicide in this. So, the man was about 6 feet tall and 138 pounds, with very short black hair and brown eyes. And that's all pretty accurate because he was found on the day of. He had a mustache and some hair on his chin... And there were scars on his right calf and right elbow, but there aren't any details about size or shape. The man was wearing a light grey nylon jacket with red trim, a tan pullover short sleeve shirt with two breast pockets. I don't know if that's one on each side or two next to each other.
0: To me, hearing two breast pockets makes me think that is like um kind of like a cowboy type situation.
1: Oh yeah, I forgot about those
0: ones. But then and- it's a short sleeve shirt.
1: Yeah, so there's two pockets. Okay. Um, He was also wearing a white T-shirt, Valini brand blue jeans in size 29, and Pro Wing brand Velcro tennis shoes. On his jacket lapel, he had two buttons. One said "Warning, Mad Lover," and the other said "Who says you can't have everything? Here I am." Which I like his style. I love those buttons. I love that so much. So, the man had a lot of personal effects, including a large blue canvas flight bag containing clothes, eyeglasses. NamUs says they were on him, but Don Network says they were in the bag. Okay. Um, also a toothbrush, toothpaste, a Bible, school supplies, and trading stamps. I had to look up what trading stamps are, and apparently they're what stores used to use before loyalty cards. Oh,
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: So none of the stamps came from local stores indicating that the man was not from the area.
0: And I have a question. Has, have those eyeglasses ever been described? Just that they have like rims. Um,
1: okay. okay. So the school supplies included three pencils and a book on contemporary math skills, which led investigators to believe the man was a student. They called different pencil companies, as well as the book publisher, probably trying to figure out where the man got them, but nothing was found.
0: And, sorry, did they have an idea of how old he was?
1: Oh, I didn't even notice that.
0: Huh. Because I would
1: chat, that I, like... I didn't even clue in on that, that I didn't put an age. Oh, okay, here we go. So, um, investigators estimate his age to be about 18 to 30.
0: Okay, so that's, he's probably, out. like, they wouldn't go to, like, the local high school, probably, unless it was maybe night classes, but he's probably more like a university or college. Yeah,
1: I think so, that's what they were looking at. Okay. So, the man's fingerprints are on file, but his DNA is not. I didn't see anything about what happened to his body, so I don't know if his remains are still available for DNA samples or not. Hopefully they are.
0: Hopefully they are, Hopefully.
1: And there's only one photo available related to this dough, which is an illustration based off of his postmortem.
0: That is a very good Doe photo.
1: Yeah, because I think they just got an artist to like take, obviously, his face, like the postmortem, and then just illustrate how he would have been without the head injuries.
0: Yeah, kind of like overlay what his eyes would have looked like and all that stuff. Like open, I mean.
1: So that's all the information that's available for him.
0: See, this is this is one of those things where like I wonder if they had put out um like flyers in the area at the time saying we found a man, these are the these are the buttons that he had, this was the book that he had, if anyone would have ever said anything or he could have been a long way from home and that wouldn't have even helped or maybe like nobody like it was like a
1: yeah, and it, I don't have any information about how the investigation was. Also, generally, I think with suicides, it's they find it harder to solve. Like, we've had a bunch of does that died by suicide that it's just harder because in this case, like, he may have just tried to get as far away from home as possible so that no one could identify him because we have a lot of those cases.
0: Yeah, and I also think that it's very, like, it kind of touches my heart in a Lyle Stavik kind of way. I don't want to bring it, you know, I'm just going to say it It touches my heart in a Lyle Stevick kind of way that he has a book on math skills. And like, yeah, it's... like it's just that, like, that was important to him that he brought it with him.
1: Yeah. So this so. one, like, although there's not much information, I just wanted to bring attention to it because it's just it's like, there's no information on it online, really, aside from Doe Network. Um, I saw it on Reddit I don't remember who posted yeah. it it was just when i was googling i think it was on the list of unidentified uh does in wikipedia
0: possibly yeah but yeah wikipedia is a good source it is it's a really we good don't source. get the because yeah not all does get all of the press coverage and sometimes we do only have like the doe network and like maybe unidentified wiki and maybe a name is page and that's about it especially so.
1: when there isn't like, a lot to go on when it's just the person and there's no, like, circumstances to look at or evidence of foul play or anything, then it becomes harder to figure out. So I can only hope that they're able to get DNA because I think that's really the only way that this is going to get solved.
0: Yes, and I'm realizing now that we said that the loyalty cards were not from the area or the loyalty stamps. Yeah, no. So if they did any, like, have you seen this man, like probably wouldn't have led to anything anyway.
1: And it's Seattle, which is, I think it's a pretty busy city
0: from what Frazier taught is. me. I mean, Fraser was a very educational tool as a child.
1: <laughs> taught me all about radio and um, Seattle and rain. Yeah, Yeah, and like, I didn't see any leads or anything. So it might just be a matter of needing to bring like the police department's attention back to it.
0: Yeah, putting, like, some dedicated effort into Mm -hmm. this case. Because it would be really, I'm sure he's got a family that's wondering where he went. Yeah. You know? So that would be really nice to get some closure for them.
1: Okay, so I guess we'll go on to
0: your identified. Yeah. Um, Okay, so we are going to Australia right now. Australia,
1: which is where I'm going in May, if everything works out.
0: I, I hope that everything works out and then yeah. you can go to Australia in May. Okay, so this is the case of Linda Agostini. So my sources are unsolvedtruecrime.com, Wikipedia, unidentified wiki, dot twistedhistory.net.au, National Library of Australia... Australian Dictionary of Biography, and I also got the definition of formalin from medicinenet.com. And a lot of the photos of this case came from Unsolved True Crime. They're a really great resource for Australian cases. So, are you ready, Caitlin? This is the Pajama Girl case. And I kind of chose it because it was one of the oldest, if not the oldest, case on Wikipedia. So... There was a woman who would later become known as Pajama Girl found on September 1st, 1934, in a burlap bag in a culvert under Howlong Road in Albury, New South Wales, Australia, and this is close to the New South Wales and Victoria border. She was spotted by a man named Tom Griffith who was walking a bull, but the body was not in the eyesight of cars on the road. Uh, In addition to being shot and beaten, the woman had been badly burned and smelled like kerosene. Mm. Here are some details taken from a crime circular published at the time by the New South Wales Police Department. And I found this on unsolvedtruecrime.com. And content warning if you are looking this up because it does contain postmortem photos that are very graphic. So, this woman was between 20 and 30 years old. She was 5'2 or 5'3 in height. She had light brown hair that was darker near the roots and might have been bleached. Her nails were manicured to a point and had traces of red polish. She had a gold inlay on the second molar of her right lower jaw. Mm. Her head was wrapped in a bath towel with three red stripes on both ends. She was wearing silk pajamas. The bottoms were white with canary yellow edging. The silk coat was canary yellow and it had a Chinese dragon pattern. And it also had a white collar and a white band around the bottom. Hmm. The circular, like the little, I guess. Like, yeah the 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 like the thing you were talking
1: miss- about with the yeah the it. like
0: found person report thing. Yeah, um, describes a laundry mark on the towel that could be read as either QIW or RIW. The last letter could be WN or H. The burlap bag was destroyed in the fire with only the letters DE remaining on it, or alternatively. There's a newsreel from the time that I found on aso.gov.au, and it says that the bag had letters D-A-L-M above the words first grade, and they thought that D-A-L-M was part of the word Dalmore, which was a farming district. Okay. The Australia Today film from 1939 also notes that silk pajamas were out of the ordinary as 1934 was smack dab in the middle of the Great Depression and silk was luxurious. So she's probably wealthy. You would think. I would think. From the smoke in the 30s. So I have seen sources say that the gunshot was cause of death. And some sources say that the beating was the cause of death. But either way, she was not alive when she was burned. Which I'm very happy to hear. Yes. I mean, I honestly breathe a sigh of relief because being burned alive is like one of my worst fears. Same. Um, the newsreel accounts her injuries as, quote, compound fracture of the temple and forehead Eight wounds above the left temple and a deep gash caused by a blunt instrument, unquote. As well as a, quote, bullet below the right eye, unquote. And, quote, a bullet located in the neck, unquote. So I'm just explaining all this because this is total overkill. And it is. to me, Ria, a total crime of passion. Yeah. Yeah. Like, someone was extremely upset and mad and, like, yeah, yeah just overkill. Um, So once authorities hit dead ends in trying to identify Pajama Girl, they transported the body to Sydney, where she was put on public display in an attempt to jog someone's memory. This didn't produce any leads. And in 1942, she was sent to the Sydney University Medical School and preserved in formalin, which is a solution of water and formaldehyde. Mm. She was then transported to police headquarters. And it sounds like from there she went to the Melbourne Morgue. And another quote from the newsreel. Uh, Quote, the body of the girl had peculiarities, large hands, peroxided hair, ears with little to no lobes, unquote. I started doing a newsreel voice halfway through that, and I'm mildly regretting it. It's fine.
1: I appreciate it.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Um, So if you look on our dog here, uh, there is a death mask Mm -hmm. of the woman and a towel. And it looks like maybe a prototype death mask. And there's also a drawing. Um... And the drawing was taken from a newspaper article on the Pajama Girl project site. And uh, the death mask is on Getty Images. And then if you scroll down, you can see where Pajama Girl was found. Mm -hmm. So it really looks just like it's a dirt road. And there's a culvert. And it looks like rural. It's really rural. It is. Yeah. So two women were thought to be Pajama Girl. One was Anna Philomena Morgan. And the other was Linda Agostini. It sounds like Anna Philomena Morgan went by Phil, so that's what I'll be referring to her as. She left home in 1930 and moved to Darlinghurst, which is a six-hour drive away from Albury. The Pajama Girl Project blog states that her mother, Jeanette Rutledge, said that Phil was being, quote, kept by a married man, unquote, and a friend said that she'd married and was now known as Mrs. Callow. Lots of scandal. So, yeah, that's the gossip of the time. Phil's mother thought that pajama girl was phil jeanette he's the mom ran a boarding house and a man named benjamin griffiths lived there from 1926 or 1927 to 1939 and he'd seen phil when she'd made visits to her mother so i guess he was like he could have picked her out in like a lineup i guess um she'd been known to him as phyllis morgan or phyllis ritledge and he described her as having dark hair and a slim build Benjamin had seen the body when it was in Sydney and confirmed again that he thought it was Phil when he saw it at the Melbourne Morgue. A quote from Benjamin in the Broken Hill Barrier Minor, which is a newspaper, is a local newspaper of the time. Quote, I believe it is the same body I identified in Sydney. I consider the body has changed quite a lot since then. It is discolored and appears to be plumper, unquote. He had also said that he had no doubt that this body was Phil. The New South Wales police thought differently. They suspected that a woman named Jean Morris, a woman murdered in Queensland in 1932, was actually Phil under a pseudonym, and that Phil wasn't pajama girl at all. Jean was thought to have ties to the mob. She was also suspected to be the daughter of an opera singer, so there were questions about her true identity. She had been viciously stabbed and was found by a meter reader. She bore a resemblance to Phil, and they both had dark hair... Uh, and it seems like police were eager to solve Phil's death and determine once and for all that she was not pajama girl and this seemed like a way to do it but one of Phil's friends testified that she saw Phil in 1933 after Jean Morris was killed. So we know how fickle eyewitnesses uh, eyewitness testimony can be yep. um though so who like who knows if that was actually Phil who who knows
1: and also like short dark hair and slim describes a lot of women of the time
0: yeah like short dark hair was like 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 i'm just picturing everyone is like like 20s flapper style yeah like that was the style yeah so who knows okay so here's a photo of philomena and a photo of jean morris so like Mm. they're both white women. i like with noses dark hair and they have
1: but they look nothing alike
0: right like the eyes are completely different like
1: eyes are different mouths are different noses are different like they
0: both have eyebrows
1: even the eyebrows are different like
0: really like
1: the face shape yeah there's like no
0: yeah so yeah um so the other woman was linda agostini whose maiden name was platt and she was born in forest hill a suburb of london on september 12 1905 she moved to new zealand in about 1926 and she then moved to sydney australia in 1927 she lived in a boarding house in King's Cross and worked at a cinema as an usherette. This is a quote from Wikipedia, quote, Platt was a heavy drinker and a jazz age party goer who had difficulty adjusting to stability. I mean, who knows if, like, that was just, like, compared to what we want a woman to be at the time.
1: Exactly. It's like, was she actually, like, a hard partier or did she just not want to stay home
0: right like she seems like a fun gal i don't like you know i probably would have gotten along with her so she married antonio agostini a waiter on april 22nd 1930 this marriage does not sound like a good one she would leave to go on drinking binges which embarrassed tony and they moved to melbourne in the state of victoria to separate linda from her friends in sydney Even if the point of the move was to get her away from her friends that were enabling her binge drinking, to me it seems like a red flag to separate Linda from her social circle entirely.
1: Yeah, that is suspicious. Right?
0: Uh, So in Melbourne, Tony got a job at an Italian newspaper and Linda got a job as a hairdresser. Linda went missing in August 1934 at 28 years old, about a week before Pajama Girl was found. Tony was questioned once the remains were found, but said that Linda had left him. So, in 1944, the police re-examined the forensic evidence, and they found an inaccuracy in Pajama Girl's dental records. Once they fixed the error, they were able to match Pajama Girl's accurate dental records to Linda Agostini. And they were also able to match freckles on an arm of Pajama Girl to the freckles on Linda using photographs. I'm assuming that arm was not burned? Yeah, and I mean I don't know because I haven't gone to forensic anthropology school like you cat. But to me a lot of people have freckles that are similar. So Well, I have
1: very distinct freckles on my arm. Like I have a rectangle of freckles, so you'd be able to identify that pretty easily.
0: Okay. So so it's not like out of the realm. This isn't like 1930s like shoddy police work like it is actually.
1: No, like matching birthmarks and freckles is pretty That's common. That's
0: the thing. Okay. So they're able to match the freckles. And also Kat took a look. Kat is in the person I'm talking to right now. Kat's not like a detective. I mean, you could be, I don't know. Kat took a look at this dental chart before, but even with my lack of forensic dental knowledge, I can see the bulletin stated that Pajama Girl had a gold inlay on the second molar on her right lower jaw. And Linda had a gold inlay on the second molar of her right lower jaw. And plus
1: there's a ton of other things in this chart in um, Linda's chart that matches the circular with pajama girl's information. And unless like investigators altered any of the information to make it match, then they're the same. Yeah. There's just too many similarities.
0: It's like too much to be a coincidence, really. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The police commissioner, William John McKay, re-interviewed Tony on March 4th, 1944, and he was nervous in the interview. He confessed to murdering Linda. He said that he accidentally shot her during a fight in bed. Tony said that she'd been holding a gun during the fight when it went off. And after she was killed, he drove across the state border to Albury and buried her in body in the covert.
1: So she was holding the gun and accidentally shot herself twice and beat
0: herself? A likely story.
1: Hmm. hmm.
0: Yes. So... UnsolvedTrueCrime.com mentioned a list of discrepancies in Tony's confession. Things like being vague with details and calling the gun a revolver when it should have been a pistol. And he says he used petrol when kerosene was actually used. And I am someone who mixes up the names of things like that on a regular basis, especially in anxious situations, Mm -hmm. which police interrogation definitely is.
1: Um, And even if this was like a really vivid moment in his life. He can still forget basic details later on. Like I've had things that it's like burned into my memory, but I'm still going to forget details
0: of it. Yeah. Like and that's how memory works. Seriously. And like, there is a certain thing that happens at least to me with anxiety where it's like, I can be thinking of something and like my brain is elsewhere and you will hear mm-hmm. something completely different come out of my mouth. I can't think of any specific example right now, but it's just like, to yeah. me, that just sounds textbook anxiety. Yep. Yep. So it's also mentioned on that website that Tony turned off a road to go to Albury, but he would have had to drive straight to town and the times he gave weren't consistent. But that's also to me nitpicking a very nervous confession when the forensics match. Not to say that like every time that there is a discrepancy in a confession that it means the person is guilty because I very much do not want to be saying that. But I think in a case where there's so much evidence and it just to me it rings that he did this.
1: If it weren't for the dental records, then I would totally believe that he could have been coerced into confessing. But with those dental records, on assuming that nothing has been altered That's it, the key too. Assuming- it's her. Like
0: Yeah. Assuming nothing has been altered, this is Linda. And if he took her away from her entire social circle, it mm-hmm. sounds like he's probably one of the only people she knows. Like, he may have been keeping a close rein on her and she wasn't able to find any other friends. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, it just, to me, it just seems like this was Tony. Tony was charged with murder, but he was found guilty of manslaughter and served a six-year prison sentence. He was released in 1948 and he was deported to Italy and he died in
1: 1969.
0: Hmm. So, even after confession and the dental records... Uh, There are still doubts that Linda was Pajama Girl. I personally have no doubt, but um, and I think Pajama Girl was Linda, but if you want to go down that rabbit hole, you can read a book by Richard Evans published in 2004 titled The Pajama Girl Mystery, A True Story of Murder, Obsession, and Lies, in which he makes the case that Pajama Girl is not Linda. Noting, among other things, that apparently Linda and Pajama Girl had a different shaped nose and different bra sizes, and apparently Linda's eyes were brown while Pajama Girl's eyes were blue. And he also mentioned that there were 125 other women on the list of possible identities, but police hadn't eliminated any of these women as potentially being Pajama Girl. So, um,
1: bras, that one, I'm just like, every company, it's a different size. Like, I have multiple bras at home, all different sizes, because that's just how bras work.
0: I feel like any person who has bought a bra would tell you that, that that's like nothing to go on.
1: This side-by-side picture, the nose looks the same to me. Yep, me
0: too. And also her face shape looks really similar and also where her eyes look similar and her forehead looks similar.
1: Everything looks the same, even with the burning, like it looks the same.
0: Like this, I am like 99.9, 99.2% sure that this is Linda. Yeah, like I have no
1: reason to believe it's not her. And also, even if there's a, hun- a list of 125, it's not like you have, you find like the one that you're like, this is them, and then keep going. You stop when you find the person, that you're like, oh, it's them.
0: Yes, I'm like making like, duh, fa- face. Yeah, light. I'm doing the same under my towel. Mm, mm-hmm. duh. So anyways, I just thought that I would bring that up in the interest of being fair to all sides, but yeah. I really do think that this is Linda. So do I yeah so that that's that that's my case
1: it's a really interesting one i love historical cases
0: me too and also like this is one that um i've been looking at for a while and i figured it is a long one and it is the pandemic so i have time to just dive in there i had time to write this and then i had time to revise it and then i had time to go back and do it again so i thought that was just a good time to do it anyways yeah yeah so, this is our first episode after our sudden hiatus. Yes. Um, we post not just about Doe stuff, but we retweet things that we see that we think people should know about or that make us angry. Anyways, we're just way more active on Twitter than we are, I think. Um, Anywhere else. Yeah. So, like, I
1: do share a lot of articles on our Facebook,
0: mostly yes, to related. Have-
1: but, like, all of our social justice retweeting and stuff is mostly our Twitter.
0: Yeah. So follow us on Twitter, Doe Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram as well, which is also at Doe Podcast. Uh, Caitlin's really the main uh, engine, I guess, of the Facebook page, which is-
1: At Doe Podcast.
0: Yeah, at Doe Podcast.
1: We're, we're at Doe Podcast on all social
0: media. Yes. And you can email us at doepodcast at gmail.com. You can visit us on our website, doepodcast.com. I think that's it.
1: Yeah. One thing I do want to bring attention to with our little what we call our soapbox corner yeah soapbox is with the pandemic going on, governments are really taking advantage of this to get rid of environmental protections
0: uh yeah, I just sent uh i Never ever called some of these uh, people in office before, but I'm calling them about Bill 197 in Ontario because they're yes, so mad about that bill. They're sneaking in changes to the environmental assessments yeah. under the guise of this is a COVID bill that's gonna every like it's it's just very sneaky and I don't like it. So.
1: And it's happening worldwide, so really pay attention to that because if you know anything about epidemiology and how viruses are spread. This is because of the climate crisis. We're going to keep getting these pandemics until governments and corporations actually make an effort, because that's how these pandemics spread.
0: Can you, I'm raising my hand, um, yes. because I don't. I know that it's because partly because of the climate or whatever, but I don't really understand the full... Do you mind giving the Coles notes on that, or is that... I don't like, have
1: the Coles notes. I'm just going to say, if you want more information about that, um, there's tons of resources online. That much more educated people than I am who are actual experts, because that's where I get all my information is people who are experts. But also look at like environmental groups that like eco justice, for instance, are um, where they focus on bringing lawsuits against governments for this kind of thing, because Mm -hmm. everything in the world is connected. Um, Uh, Yeah, like racism is also connected to environmentalism. Um, like what's going on in the Amazon. Yeah. Like trying to wipe out the Indigenous people there is based in racism. So everything to do with social justice is connected.
0: Yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess that's it. Uh, stay safe. Stay safe. And we'll talk to you next time. All right. Bye. Bye.